Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Not Another Mummy podcast is brought to you by Tony's, the leading audio device for young children. If you've never heard of the Tony box, listen up because it is just so clever. Children simply pop a Tony's hand-painted character on top of the Tony box to start playing music, stories or educational content. Ideal for kids from toddlers right up to around eight, the Tony box has over 70 titles to choose from, ranging from Disney classics like The Lion King to favourites like Peppa Pig and The Gruffalo. There are also music Tonys with nursery rhymes and action songs, plus educational Tonys where listeners can learn about space, dinosaurs and more. Personally, I love that the Tony box is robust and easy to use for little ones. My toddlers can choose their favourite Tony's character, which is usually Peppa or Elsa from Frozen, and get listening without any help from me, which they love too, because believe you me, they're going through a real independent phase right now. They want to do everything themselves. We love playing bedtime stories and lullabies on our Tony box. And in what I think is a stroke of genius, the Tony box automatically switches itself off when it finishes playing, which means that I don't have to creep into their room to switch it off and potentially wake them up. I'll be taking our Tony box with us when we go on a caravan holiday this summer. It's ideal for car journeys because it's portable, cable free, and it has seven hours of battery life. You can save stories and songs onto the Tony box and play them without Wi-Fi. To find out more, buy a Tony box and get your kids started on audio adventures, visit www.tonys.com. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy podcast with me, Alison Perry. My guest on this episode took an earth-shattering life event and turned it into a novel. Josie Lloyd is a best-selling author and mum of three. She's written 15 best-selling novels, including the number one hit, Come Together, which she co-authored with her husband, Emlyn Reese, and it was number one for 10 weeks, published in 27 languages, and even made into a working title film. I remember reading Come Together at uni and feeling like it really spoke to me about relationships, friendships and navigating it all as a young person. In 2017, Josie was diagnosed with breast cancer and urged by a friend to keep fit, she went down to the seafront in Brighton where she lives and joined a running group. These were all women who, like her, were going through cancer treatments and they soon became firm friends. 
She didn't realise it at first, but it was actually a training group for the Brighton Marathon 10K and she ended up running the race just before her third session of chemo. The whole experience, she says, was so utterly uplifting and inspiring that she decided she had to write about it in her latest novel, The Cancer Ladies Running Club. Before my chat with Josie, it would be brilliant if you could take a moment to rate, review and subscribe on wherever you're listening to this episode. But now on to Josie Lloyd. Welcome, Josie. It is so good to have you join me today. How's your day been so far? Well, pretty exciting, to be honest, because it's publication week. And um, and sometimes on publication week as an author, you sit there nervously biting your nails going, is anything happening? And this week, loads is happening because um, I did a big radio interview yesterday and I've just had loads of lovely messages from people who've connected with the story of the book. So actually, it's been wonderful. I've had a really nice day. I'm feeling the love today, Alison. <laughs> That's so nice. You were on um, Michael Ball's radio show, weren't you? Yes, I was. And it was a bit nervous doing live radio because I haven't done it for a while. Um, but it was absolutely wonderful. And I sort of told the story of the book. And um, and yeah, I got such lovely feedback from people afterwards. But the best thing about it between you and me was <laughs> that on the billing, it was Sir Tom Jones and Josie Lloyd. And and I, I saw. <laughs> and I was a bit like, all the rallies in Wales were like, oh, we've got so many connections to Tom Jones because he was born on the same day as my mum and uh, all my family oh. are from Welsh, away from Welsh and they're down the road. So Auntie Merrill was going for it. She was like, oh, and tell Tom this. And I was like, oh, Merrill, I'm not going to be in the studio. Sorry, it's just on the phone. If only, if only, if only it yeah. was like, you know, pre or post COVID times, you probably would have been in the studio with Tom, cozying up to him, having a cup of tea. <laughs> fangirling yeah but no it was wonderful and he's so nice Michael Ball I mean he was just it was a really nice thing so yeah all good thank you actually yeah that's utterly exciting and I'm sorry that you've kind of come crashing down from Michael Ball <gasps> not at to all. chatting to me I'm very excited <laughs> to be here thank you it's lovely to chat to you um I think it's fair to say that you are one of the best known fiction writers from the past 20 years um when I was at uni I read Come Together the book that you wrote with your husband Emmeline Reese, and I just adored it and <laughs> I actually bought another copy recently a second-hand oh, copy because really? <laughs> I wanted to reread it yes and does it stack up I haven't got to it yet I kind of I started looking at it but then I really wanted to delve into your latest book and so I thought oh do I do what you know the right thing for you know ahead of the interview or do I kind of go down this memory lane for nostalgia's sake and I thought no I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna read the new book <laughs> oh well I'm, I'm glad you did I mean come together bless it very happy and still we get people sending us pictures from around the world in student hostels and places where they found a copy of Come Together. And in fact, Emily and I, this may, really make you laugh. So the other day we were, he was Googling Come Together for some reason. And you know, Paul Oakenfold, the D, the, you know, the, the DJ. So yeah. he did a kind of soundscapes of the city thing in about 2001. And he set a whole kind of DJ set over the top of people reading out from Come Together. It's hilarious. Anyway, so we wow. sent it to our daughter who's at uni in Bristol <laughs> and Emily was like, Dad was, Emily was like, Dad here, guess what we found? We sent it off and then we started listening to it and it's so rude. We were like, 
tell her not to read it, tell her not to listen. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> so yeah, it's quite embarrassing. But of late, um, I did actually get contacted by a university professor saying, we really, really want to sort of, we, we've, we're really using your book as kind of like the handbook for 90s culture. Mm. Because of course, it was written before the internet, before mobile phones and, uh, yeah, it's really funny. We always have a family joke because um, there's a bit that I wrote, Amy, the character that I wrote, She's uh, she rings up Jack and, of course, there's all that kind of shenanigans of leaving a message on the home phone. Oh, yeah, which just wouldn't happen these days. It just wouldn't happen. And I can remember, I'm ringing inside his house. <laughs> it's like this big thing. So, yeah, no, it's really funny. I mean, it, we are kind of still very proud of that book, but um, it, every time we kind of open it, we blush dreadfully. Oh, no, you yeah. shouldn't. You absolutely shouldn't. I mean, what was it like having a Sunday Times number one bestseller so early on in, in your writing career? Well, actually, do you know, I'm actually really delighted that we were very successful young, when we were young because it was mental, you know, just we, we the way it sort of came about, um, if people don't know. So Emlyn was my agent's assistant and I was writing my second novel and he was writing a second novel. And this is, we're talking way back in the last century now. We're talking like 1997 <laughs> when, as my daughter says, things were in black and white. So, uh, Emily and I, <laughs> Emily and I were like chatting and we were like confidants and we were both writing our second books. And, um, we used to go out in Soho and we used to go and have a few drinks and we would laugh about how we were getting on with our love lives. And one day Emily said, we should really write this down. This is really funny. And he rang me up the next day from work and said, do you want to have a go at writing a book with me? And I remember saying, yes, I remember standing exactly where I was in my flat in just off Portobello Road. I remember that day I was really hung over. And, um, and I remember saying yes. And it was kind of such an empowering yes. I didn't realize it at the time. Um, anyway, he read, he went away and wrote, uh, used all his stories and all his friends' stories and wrote, uh, this character, Jack. He was a real Jack the lad. And at the end of the chapter, Jack turns around and sees this girl. And so I had complete carte blanche at that point because, he hadn't described her. He just sort of says, hi, my name is Jack. And then I get to respond. So it was this really exciting task. And I rolled up my sleeves and I wrote Amy in response. And we had these two chapters and uh, it went nuts. We gave them to our agents. We got a massive, there was a huge book auction. We landed up writing this book. It was published in 26 languages. It was made into a film. And we were suddenly to get, and, we, and as a result of, get, of writing the book, we got together as a couple. So we were then trucking around Europe, going to Milan, going to uh, Amsterdam, just all these places, having an amazing time and um, promoting the book. And of course, I thought that every single book would be like that. <laughs> that's just how it was. Yeah. You would be on the front of every newspaper. So that's, that's what happens, isn't it? And so it was a bit of a shock to come back down to earth with a bit of a bump. But, you know, it was really fun. And it's what's so nice. There's still such a lot of affection for that book, you know, from the readers. There so, really is. Yeah. There really is. I mentioned it on Instagram the other day when I was I was looking at it and I had so many people messaging me saying, oh, I love that book. <laughs> I, it feels like for people like, so I'm, I'm 42. So I read it. I think I was probably in like my first or second year at uni. Yeah. Or maybe like, so yeah, second year at uni. And I think that for people who read it at that stage where we were kind of figuring out who we were and this kind of notion of people, you know, like, like relationships and, you know, boys and girls like going on dates. I don't know. It just felt so kind of exciting. And I think that's why so many people just hold it in their hearts as one of these 
amazing books. Well, it's so lovely to hear, but it's also very true because we wrote it because there wasn't anything out there. I mean, we were like, where is the book for us? You know, Nick Hornby had Mm. been published. Bridget Jones was on the way, but there was nothing really 20 something about our lives. We wanted to read about us. It's always, um, and I've always been one to turn to fiction and, you know, my latest book I've written because for exactly that reason, there was nothing in the space that I wanted. And I want, I desperately wanted, I, I always turn to fiction in times of, you know, all the time. I'm an avid reader, but I love fiction as a way of learning about a situation or things. I'm, I'm much more yeah. of a fiction reader than a non-fiction reader. And I needed a novel when, you know, I was diagnosed with cancer. It's like, where is my novel? I want the novel about cancer that's not all doom and gloom. I don't want to read about mums dying with tubes up their noses. I don't want doom and gloom. I don't want, you know, the love story. Do you remember that Ryan O'Neill love story? I remember from my childhood, this awful, heartbreaking story of this woman, Ali McCourse, dying of cancer. Which is like, I don't want to read that. I want something that is about what I'm going through, but it's positive, you know. So that's why I wrote the book, because there was nothing there. Exactly, exactly. And your new book, The Cancer Ladies Running Club, you know, you might think, someone listening might think, oh, I'm not going to read a book about cancer. Like, that doesn't sound very, you know, it's not, it's not going to, you know, put a spring in my step. But it it is an inspiring, uplifting story, isn't it? Yeah. And it's very much, I mean, it's like, I mean, there's, it, there's something very personal about this book. And it was inspired by my own experience. So in 2017 I was diagnosed with breast cancer after a routine scan and I was it was a pre they were doing a a trial to test women under 50 and I was 47 at the time they said you want to come along for a mammogram and I was like yeah why then and I had actually noticed a tiny dimple in the bottom of my left breast and I'd shown Emlyn and we'd kind of been to the doctor and they said oh it's fine there was no lump it was just a kind of little dimple anyway so I said this to the lady you know, I've seen a little dimple. She said, well, we'll call you back in the new year, probably for another appointment. There's nothing to worry about. But then, of course, I went back and it was actually quite serious. And it was cancer. And my whole world just felt as if it had completely fallen apart. And what I hated most, if I'm really honest, is just this feeling of being labelled. Just like, oh, Josie, she's got cancer. You know, it was just, I just felt this sort of stigma of the whole cancer thing. And I didn't want it. It was just, I don't want to be a cancer magnet. I don't want to talk about cancer. I don't want other people's cancer stories. I don't want this to be happening to me. Um, and I landed up talking to a mum at the school gates, Roz, who was um, a fitness instructor. And she said, look, I'm running a charity outreach program for Albion in the community. I live down in Brighton. There are local football teams to come and meet my group of women. They're all going through cancer treatment or have been through cancer treatment. And I was like, really? <laughs> Fitness? Really? <laughs> Do I have to get my training? It's probably the furthest thing from your mind at that point, isn't I was it? Like, yeah. And everybody wanted to wrap me in cotton wool at the time. Anyway, I went and met this amazing group of women and they were, you know, bawdy. And we had this hilarious kind of gallows humour about the whole thing. And I totally loved them. So it was a group specifically of women, women who were suffering from cancer. Well, yeah, some were going through treatment. So Jane, who uh, very much inspired Tamsin, my uh, elder goth in the book. Uh, she was just ahead of me. So she'd had her operation, but was just starting chemo. And the others were all kind of in various stages out the other side of treatment, but sort of really trying to get their mojo back. And we landed up kind of running together. And it was just so, I mean, it's, it's that whole thing. Do you know what I really felt like? Oh, you all relate to this. You know, when you're a really heavily pregnant woman and you go and you meet brand new mothers and you're the pregnant one and then they give you all the dirt. And they give you 
all the horror stories. And some of it's good and some of it's bad. Yeah. I think I think sometimes you, you really welcome that that insight, but also there's a bit of you that doesn't want to know. Yeah. And I was there sort of slack jawed was they were sort of telling me about embarrassing hair loss and all the like infected ports and all the awful things that chemo was going to about to do to me. And I was like, wow. And I came back and I said to Emily, I don't know if I could do it. And she, he was like, no, 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 it's great. Anyway, so I went back and I really, really bonded with these women. And about three weeks later, um, I'd had my operation, I think it was just, or I was just about to have my mastectomy. And um, there was a guy from the press down there and he said, uh, you, he said, you uh, are so great for doing the Brighton Marathon 10K. And I said, the, the what? <laughs> and Ros said, oh, didn't I tell you this was the training group? I just went, no, Ros, you bloody didn't. I, this, I had to know about this. Anyway, so we landed up running this race and I didn't think I could do it. it was, I was running bald and I, it was this really hot day and I was just exhausted. And as I took my hat off, I was bald and, you know, slowing down. And then all these women in this race, it was just the most amazing thing, Alison, because they just, these women in various kind of charity sweatshirts and stuff and t-shirts kept running past me going, I'm clear three years, I'm clear five years, I'm clear 10 years and gave me all this kind of encouragement. And then this one amazing woman who was like the picture of health, she ran with me and she said, um, I had terrible cancer, really stageable cancer. They thought it was a goner and I ran all the way through my treatment. Anyway, so we, she said, keep going, keep going. And on the last turn of the race, she'd waited for me. And I was like, she said, can I just stop, slow down a sec? I just want to talk to you. She said, slow down a sec. I wasn't running very fast, I can tell you. <laughs> so she said, she said, um, when I was going through my worst bit of my treatment, I was at my lowest ebb and I was in a cafe. And this woman, this stranger came up to me and said, listen, I know what you're going through. I've been through exactly the same thing. Um, and you've just got to keep hope. You've got to keep positive and know that your life will be better the other side of cancer. And this woman in the cafe had taken off this little butterfly necklace, this little silver necklace, and had given it to the runner and had said, look, this is a little butterfly of hope. And the runner said to me, well, I've been wearing this necklace for three years and it's now time to pass it on. And she gave it to me. She said, it's Aww. now your little butterfly of hope. And I want you to know that your life is going to be better than ever the other side of cancer. And we had a little hug and a few tears and off she went. And I don't even know her name. Don't know anything about her apart from that. And I've, I've been wearing this necklace ever since and kind of I'm obviously I'm looking to pass it on very soon because I'm much better now and but I kind of it was such an inspiring amazing thing that happened and I thought I've got to put that in a book I've just got to write a book I've got to I've got to write a book that's about friendship but it's about positivity and you know because and also to do some debunking because one in two of us are going to get cancer in our lifetime and one in eight women get breast cancer. That's huge, isn't it? It's huge. So we're, it's a subject that affects us all, right? And in Australia, for example, they talk all the time about skin cancer. It's a very known thing that people, it's, you know, people talk very clearly about how they're pre- preventing it. It's very much in the public domain. And I think that by talking about these things and making awareness happen I think it really helps people and I think it helps to make it less scary it helps to do some debunking because there's amazing treatment you know I'm so lucky because I got picked up early but you know the treatments are fantastic and there's lots of women like my ladies in the cancer ladies running club and me who are thriving not just surviving you know we're 
living life brilliantly and uh and we need stories about those people and i couldn't find any so i wrote one there you go oh brilliant brilliant <laughs> um, and it's funny you mentioning the comparison to being a heavily pregnant lady because the book really reminds me like, the feeling of the book reminds me of that feeling that many people have when they join an antenatal class yeah and they meet a group of friends and you you know you've got small babies and you're all going through the same thing at the same time and it can be an incredibly bonding experience, can't it? Yes. And I do think that's really a big message of this book. It's about finding your tribe. And, um, and I think that I think you're so much stronger with people going through the same experience. And I certainly know from my experience with the, with the girls that I ran with. I mean, we still occasionally run together, but mostly we just banter on the WhatsApp and meet for curries. I mean, if I'm very honest, <laughs> but you know, we all still run, but it's actually, I have this incredible bond with them because they were with me at the kind of most scary lowest point of my life but it's just that thing isn't it where somebody knows what you're going through it's like a, a new mum when you're ragged and you kind of can't feed a baby and your baby isn't still quite there's it's only another mother in the same situation who can talk you down sometimes and in the same way you know when I was really really feeling at my lowest through the chemo and you just I mean it's a horrible it's it's a horrible feeling and I remember Jane she texted me and she went it's unpleasant but it's not insurmountable and how you're feeling now will pass. And I remember how, I remember how important that was to hear that from her because everybody around me was quite frightened by how I was feeling. And she was just like, no, you can do this. It will pass. And actually I could have only got that from somebody who knew. So I think it's really important to find your tribe. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Really important. It really is. really is. And you were running through your chemotherapy sessions, which must have taken so much willpower just to get out there because... You know, from what a lot of people I know who've told me who've been through chemo, it can leave you feeling really unwell. Yeah, it does leave you feeling really unwell at different at different points as well. And there were times when I couldn't run, um, or there was times when I was running so slowly, little toddlers in flip flops were overtaking me. <laughs> so you know, it was <laughs> when I say running, running is a generous term to be honest, for quite a lot of the movement that took place. But I do really believe that it's really important to get your trainers on and get out in the in the fresh air. And actually having a group of women who were all a little bit more advanced than, than me and in their terms of their recovery, I just felt duty bound to go and see them and hang out with them. And I went for the kind of social aspect of it, not necessarily the exercise. So, and I think that's the really important message that you can exercise when you are going through cancer treatment. And it's so important. And there's, there's quite a lot of studies now about how exercise has a massive difference and a massive uh, effect on outcomes because it's so good for you mentally, mainly, I should think. And you mentioned that you kind of battled with the idea that cancer was 
part of your identity. And that's something that, that Kira, the character in, in your book, battles with as well. Um, did you get to a point where you almost decided that you were going to own it, that this was, this was part of your identity and you were okay with that? Mm. Yeah. Well, it's weird, isn't it, to write a book about cancer because I didn't want anything to do with cancer. I literally was, you know, the person in the book, uh, you know, one of the, the women in the book, I kind of, she can't say the word cancer. She goes, <laughs> Um, oh. <laughs> and she, you know, she says it on an in-breath and uh, it's a joke through the book that, you know, because it's quite funny, the book about kind of other people's reaction. And Kira is just, she doesn't want to take a step back from work. She doesn't want to tell her kids. She doesn't want to change her marriage. She, she's in a good space. She feels she's in her prime and she does not want anything to change about her life. And she certainly doesn't want to be labelled as a cancer victim, which is a particularly unpleasant feeling. Um, so I felt very strongly that it was important to write about that and actually one of the things that really helped me was uh in during my treatment I saw a program that Kirsty Walk had made about the menopause and in it she interviewed Jennifer Saunders who is a particular hero of mine and uh she had breast cancer and she said and Kirsty Walk said we were were talking about the menopause and how you kind of get crashed headfirst into it after cancer treatment because you have to take hormone replacement drugs anyway she um she said she said and what about the cancer what about the breast cancer jennifer saunders just went ah how's that and she kind of just sort of put her hand over her shoulder flippantly as if she had completely forgotten about it and it was sort of in the past and i thought god i want to be like that i want to be like that i don't want it to be thing i don't want it to find me but as time went through time went on i journaled the whole thing because I always find I'm a writer through and through so I just I have to write all the time and and I always found found that writing down my feelings really helped during the process that I was going through through the cancer and of course being a terribly vain writer by the end of it I had like 80,000 words of quite good copy and I'm like oh what am I going to do I'm going to put it in a drawer what am I going to do um and then I just thought no I really want there to be a fiction book and so I set about using some of this material but it read too much like a memoir and I didn't want it to be a memoir because I wanted it I didn't want it to be subjective I wanted it to be honest but a fictional story so it took me quite a few goes to actually get the story right and to get Kira to feel different enough from me that it wasn't my story that it's very much hers so yeah I'm I'm really pleased that I've done it because I don't feel that I'm a poster girl for cancer I feel that I'm a poster girl for thriving the other side of cancer and there's quite a big difference absolutely there's a huge difference and I've heard quite a lot of people give advice to writers like aspiring writers write what you know but there must be an element of vulnerability you know when you're writing a book like this and you're including personal experiences in the fiction that you're writing so was, was it hard to push past that or did did you find that, that quite an easy process? Um, I didn't find it an easy process and it is quite hard to push past, but time is the great healer. And actually, there's quite a long time between when I wrote this book and now because it was supposed to come out last year because of COVID. Oh, so actually, I've had a couple of years to really get some perspective. And of course, I've written other things. I've written other books as Joanna Reese, and I'm writing my next Josie Lloyd book and lots of life has happened in between. So it doesn't feel so raw. Uh, and also I did kind of come to a decision of like, you can't, if you're going to write an honest book, you need, you need to be honest. You just need to be 
you know, brave about it and put all those details in. And yes, there are intimate details in there that did happen to me and did happen to some of the people that I know. Um, but I think it's really important to share those and to ha- lay them bare because that's the whole point. We need to talk about it. We need people to know. And I didn't, this isn't a book just about cancer. Um, it's a really a book about friendship. And so it, I didn't write it for people going through cancer or people with cancer in their families. I wrote it for everybody else. You know, so the fact that it's helping people who have been had a similar experience is really wonderful. But actually, my purpose was to write it for the me that didn't know anything about cancer before I got cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Now, thinking back to those amazing, inspiring women who are running alongside you um, and, you know, saying, you know, five years, three years, you know, there is life there. You will have an amazing, you know, life after after you've kicked this. Um how is life different for you since you've recovered from cancer? Apart from writing this book, are there any other positives or are there any other changes that you recognise in yourself that are actually really good? Yes. I mean, quite quite a lot. Um, not any ones that you would particularly, anybody else, even Eminent who lives with me would particularly notice. But one of the things that struck me was, um, and what it took me a long time to get my head around, was the fact that I got cancer on my watch. I was like, I don't have breast cancer with my family. It wasn't a genetic breast cancer. So it's a lifestyle-induced cancer, which then leads you down to a whole rabbit hole of, well, what gave me cancer? Was it my diet? Was it the fact that I'm, you know, quite a, you know, a sociable person? I love drinking. I love going to the pub. I, you know, love going to restaurants with my friends. If it is my overindulgence, you know, something that's really got me or is it stress I was very stressed out at one point because my mum had died and that kind of was and I hadn't been looking after myself very well at that point because it was all a very stressful situation was it that or what was it so you go through all of this process what was it and the and you know a very wonderful breast cancer care nurse talked me down and just said you will never know and you will have to know that you will never know and it's a whole raft of factors many of which you cannot control at all that are, you know, all sorts of different things, a whole big old raft of factors caused your cancer and you can't blame it on carbohydrates or eating sugar. So you go through quite a period of kind of adjustment of like, okay, I'm going to go on a crazy diet and then you go, no, actually not. I'm just going to go, I'm just going to eat sensibly, drink sensibly. And what I realized was one of the things that I needed to change the most was that for 30 years, I've been busy and really happily busy, you know, busy bringing up three kids, busy social life, busy career as an author, you know, busy household, loving it. And very much, if anybody asked me to do anything, I was that woman who's like, if you want anything done, ask a busy woman. And it was me, you know, I was very happy to just fill yeah. up our social life. And at no point had I really put my well-being on my list because I kind of thought that I didn't really count, that that was sort of self-indulgent in some way. So although I was kind of exercising, you know, I'm a bit faddy about exercising, but I had done some exercising. I wasn't really doing the meditation or the yoga that I meant to do. I wasn't really looking after myself. And so the biggest change that I've made in my life is um, to really put some things in place where I check in with myself. And that really involves um, morning routine where I get out, you know, it's just little habits that stick. So every morning I get up, I go outside my study where I live in Brighton in my dressing gown, possibly a hat, 
often some trainers or some wellies look really bizarre. <laughs> the neighbours must think I'm really eccentric. <laughs> and I do um, a 15-minute Qigong routine. So Qigong is very much like Chinese yoga. So it's slow, meditative movement that connects the mind and the body and the breath in the same way that all yoga does, you know, whatever kind of exercise you're doing. It just gives me a chance to just ground myself and centre and be nice and be kind. And um, I find that makes a massive difference to my day. I do quite a bit of exercise. I still run, do quite a lot of yoga. And um, I mainly don't beat myself up. I'm kind of nice to myself. And I'm and <laughs> the one thing that my children would say probably is that I'm, I've stopped being quite so self-critical. So for quite a long time, I would, they would take pictures of me and I'd be like, no, you can't, don't look at that picture. It's awful. Delete it, delete it. I could be wrinkly and jowly and blah. And I'm like, now I'm like, no, I just want to be in the pictures with my kids and I don't care if I'm making a silly face or got a double chin. You know, I'm really delighted to be in the picture. So I feel a lot more mellow, but that could just be age as well, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and also just, you know, in terms of looking after ourselves and getting that perspective, I think lockdown has probably done a lot to change the way that we that we look at this stuff, hasn't it? Yes. And I think that people, I mean, I don't know what, what you think from the kind of social media and stuff that you see, but I kind of think before COVID, we were all kind of obsessed with the shinies, you know, all the people with the perfect home and the perfect this. And, and I kind of think that social media has got a lot more real and people are on Zoom calls with kids rushing in and, you know, they haven't done their hair and they're exhausted. And actually, we're seeing people in their real state. And I think that's actually mm. really liberating for a lot of people. I think it is. I think it really is. Yes. But, I mean, for us, you know, Emily and I have been working at home for 22 years together. So when we got, when COVID hit, we were like, all right, people, we've got this. We've been doing this for years. <laughs> um, <laughs> we know what we're doing. Well, you know, so that actually, it was different and I found it quite difficult to write because I'm a people person and I get my energy from people and going out and meeting people and seeing people and I found just being stuck at home quite difficult actually so I mean I did I did write but it wasn't as easy as I thought it would be you talk about being a really busy person and you know you mentioned you've got three kids and you've got a dog I think haven't you oh yes and and you know it strikes me like how do you have time to write how do you juggle the demands of family life with writing is there a certain time of day that you write or do you just kind of fit it in whenever you can oh that's a 60 million dollar question isn't it um well it sort of changed over time when the kids were little it was very much bums on seats you know the second they left the house to go to nursery or school then we would sit down and write um and in this is quite an interesting thing because I always thought, I've always felt a bit of a fraud as a writer because I just don't feel that I'm a proper writer because I don't have writing study. I live, I, you know, my study is the junk room where everybody throws all the stuff, all the cushions for the garden are in here. I'm surrounded by, I mean, I look, you'd be horrified if you could see my study now. So it's always no, no, a mess. No, this it's sounds always, very familiar. <laughs> it's always a bit hectic. And, uh, and, I always thought, well, I, if I just had a, pro if I was a proper writer and I had a study and I had a like, proper writing desk and I was very calm and I had all the, and I just took myself off for eight hours a day, I would write and I would be very much more productive. But here's the thing. Turns out that's not true because as soon as I did have all the time in the world to write, I couldn't write a thing because I was just like, oh, this, you know, this is not how I write. And what I've learned is that I write under pressure in snatches. The best time in the, for me to write is first thing in the morning. So after I've done my going, if I just literally sit down in my dressing gown at my computer, I can get my thousand words done. 
And what I what I find is that I'm I'm thinking about things during the day, and I I can write in snatches. So I'm I'm not somebody that needs to sort of sit down for hours and end at a computer. I need to go in and out. So and that's just that's just my process and the way I do. And I was very relieved when a friend sent me something that Elizabeth Gilbert had written. Um, she of Eat, Pray, Love, Fame, and uh, Cit- and City of Girls, which is an amazing book. Just read that recently. Um, she said that writing should be like a lover that you kind of have snatched moments with and that you kind of like you're pressing yourself up against somebody at a dinner party for a quick snog. And that's what you should feel like your writing is like. And I thought, yes, that's it. That's me. Yeah, because if you sit down for hours on end and just feel like I've got to write something and I don't know what to write and just feel that pressure, then you're it's sucking the joy out of it, isn't it? Yeah. And I, but I also think that we do need focus. I mean, I, I have to do it where my children aren't awake. I don't have the internet on. It's too early to do emails or social media. And, and then I can concentrate because as soon as I open my phone or open a message, my brain is elsewhere. And I'm also a terrible magpie. You know, I'm, I kind of flip between things. I don't, I'm not terribly focused. So I really, in order to write, I have to be really, really disciplined yeah. and focused. Oh, if only we could all be disciplined and focused all the time. You know, yeah, that's, wouldn't that be nice? that's a dream, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I know. But also, but I think, but I, you know, this is the thing about the kind of joy of coming through cancer treatment. You just have to be okay with how you are. It's fine to just be the way you are and to, you know, and to recognize that and to be nice to yourself, I think. It's I think thing so. I've learnt. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's brilliant advice. Um, so the Cancer Ladies Running Club is available to buy now. Before we say goodbye, Josie, where can people find you online? Well, uh, I am not the world's most brilliant social uh, person on the socials, but I am giving it a whirl. I am at Josie Lloyd Books on Twitter and I'm at Josie Lloyd Writer on Instagram and I have a Josie Lloyd Writer Facebook page. So you can find me through any of those routes. Lovely. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a great chat. Oh, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.